So we're going to explore the prodigal son today. We're actually going to explore the prodigal son, what has traditionally been called the parable of the prodigal son. Some refer to it as the parable of the lost son, or some refer to it as the parable of the lost sons. Uh, Some refer to it as the parable of the merciful father. It is all of that. And uh, as we wrap up this series on becoming whole, we're going to focus on this particular parable for the next three Sundays. And uh, there are three kind of primary characters in this parable. Uh, The father is the primary character who is consistent through the whole thing, and then we have the younger son and the elder son. So this morning I want to explore the story of the younger son and the father's interaction with him. Next week I want to explore the story of the elder son and the father's interaction with him, and then I want to wrap this whole series up by exploring the character and nature of the father in this story. And so uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. Before we jump into this, I want to uh, share with you, so this... This may be the most popular uh, and famous story Jesus told, uh, perhaps this one, or the parable of the Good Samaritan. These are both probably the most popular parables of Jesus. Uh, What's fascinating to me is this parable is 22 verses long, and out of these 22 verses, people have written entire books just on this parable. And so... uh, Along with uh, commentaries and other resources I'm reading, there's three books that I'm reading uh, as I prepare for these sermons, and I want to share them with you in case you want to dig deeper into this parable. The first one is one by Henry Nouwen. He wrote a book called The Return of the Prodigal Son, which is his reflections not only on the parable itself, but on Rembrandt's famous painting titled The Return of the Prodigal Son. It's a fabulous book if you're interested in that. Another book is Prodigal God by Timothy Keller, which is a a small volume and just a wonderful text to read on this story. And then lastly, one that I'm reading is called The Cross and the Prodigal. It's written by a guy named Kenneth Bailey, who has spent most of his adult life uh, living in the Middle East, studying their culture, living uh, amongst the people there. And so he takes a very historical, cultural approach to the writing of this book. He looks at the parable and digs in, okay, what was going on historically and culturally? And when Jesus' listeners heard this story, what were they thinking when they heard certain things? So if you're interested in history and culture, Kenneth Bailey is a great resource to look at on this parable. So I want to start uh, all of Luke 15. There are three parables in Luke 15. One is called uh, the parable of the lost coin. One is called the parable of the lost sheep. And then there's the parable of the lost son. And so they're parables of lostness and finding. And the, uh, the chapter begins, however, with these words. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so we have this group of people that are gathered around Jesus. But within this group, there are two groups of people. One are the tax collectors and sinners. So uh, most Jews would be looking down on tax collectors because they have become friendly with Rome. And they are charging more than the required tax in order to get wealthy themselves. And then just general 
sinners. Then we have the Pharisees who are muttering amongst themselves about Jesus hanging out with, eating and drinking with these tax collectors and sinners. And so these two groups of people are present as Jesus tells these three stories. And we're going to jump into the third in verse 11, where Jesus says, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And so this man, he has two sons, and it becomes clear that he is a wealthy man. And the younger son comes to his dad and says, Give me my share of the estate. Now, in the first century, if you had sons, you left the inheritance to them when you died. It's not too much different than today. Most people today leave a will, and not always, but most often, most of what they have is left to their children. This son asks his dad for his share before his dad dies. In this culture, if this happened, what this son is saying is, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me what's coming to me now. I wish you were dead. Jesus' listeners would have been shocked that a son would make this request of his dad. But what they would have been more shocked by is the father's response. He does it. He gives his son what he asks for. This is completely shocking. Because the appropriate response would be to kick the child out of the home and say, you are no longer my son. If you wish me dead, you are dead to me. And kick the child out of the home. Instead, this father gives his son what he asks for. This father seems quite reckless from the beginning. But what this father knows is that he cannot force his love on his son. His son has to freely choose to receive his love or reject it. And so he gives his son what he asks for. Now, when the son says, give me my share of the estate, he is choosing his words very carefully because the word for estate means property or possessions. What the son is interested in is getting the property and the possessions so he can liquidate them, get the money, and run. What he does not say is, give me my share of the inheritance. Because had he asked for the inheritance, what he is saying is, I am mature, I am responsible, and I can lead and take ownership over this estate, govern it, manage it, and cause it to grow and flourish and prosper. 
Instead, he asks for the property so he can liquidate it and sell it. And so the text tells us that his father gave him his share of the property. This is a different word than estate. Interestingly, this word for property in the Greek is a word that means life. His father divided his life between them. Something that is hard for us to fully grasp and understand about this culture is that their identity and their very lives were tied to the land. Their identity and very lives were tied to the land. So to lose a portion of your land was to lose a portion of your identity. It was to lose a portion of your life. And this father divides his life, his identity, out of love for his son and gives it to him. Verse 13, not long after that, the son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. So it's clear that the son, if he gathers all he had, he didn't gather the property and the cattle, and all that goes with it, he sold it all as quickly as he could, which means he did not get nearly what it was worth. He was in a hurry to get out of town. And so he sold everything, took the money, and went to a far-off country. And there squandered his wealth in wild living. And so this son takes everything, sells it all, takes the money, goes to a far-off country, and then proceeds to immediately spend it all on wild living. This is where we get the word prodigal. uh, he, He squandered his money on prodigal living. Prodigal means extravagant, reckless abundance. He squandered it all on extravagant, reckless, abundant living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And so this son... He's spent everything he has. He's squandered it. And now there's a famine. And he's in need. The question would be, why would he not return to his father right away, where he knows his father has food to eat? Why would he not return right away when he finds himself in need? The son has not yet come to the end of himself. He has not yet discovered that he is not in control. He has not yet discovered that he is powerless. He still believes he can control his situation and somehow figure it out. And so he hires himself out to a citizen 
of this far-off country. Now, it's likely that during a famine, uh, a citizen, someone who has citizenship, is probably fairly well off and probably has a number of homeless vagabonds coming to his door begging and looking for something to do, anything to do just to eat. And so when this young man comes to his door, it's likely that he knew who he was, probably saw him come into town in his regal clothing and with all his money, probably watched him spend it all, and now sees this young man who is clearly from a wealthy family, is now impoverished and desperate. He also is probably clearly Jewish. And so he gives him a job that he knows he will refuse. There's no way this Jewish lad will go feed pigs. Because pigs, for the Jews, are unclean. You don't touch them, you don't go near them. They're unclean. This young man does it. He does it. He goes and he feeds the pigs. And not only does he hang out with the pigs and feed the pigs, but he wishes he was a pig. He longs to eat the pods that the pigs are eating. And he doesn't even get to eat that. He comes to a place of complete and utter desperation. He longs to eat the pots, but no one gave him anything. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. You know, uh, I grew up in a pretty conservative Christian home, and uh, there was a father who had two sons. I'm one of the sons. Uh, I have an older brother, and I was often the prodigal son, running away from home in wild living. And uh, as I reflect on this parable, I recognize that I can relate to the younger son at one season in my life. I can relate to the elder son at another season in my life. I can relate to the father, and I long to live more like the father. But I often live again like the younger son or like the elder son rather than like the father. I I love these questions that Henry Nouwen asks in his book. Why do I keep ignoring the place of true love and persist in looking for it elsewhere? Why do I keep leaving home where I am called the beloved of God? Henry Nouwen talks about how our true home is the heart of God, resting in the love of God and how often we walk away from it. We ignore the love and the heart of God that is constantly present, constantly available to us, constantly offered to us, and we just keep walking away over and over and over. Why? Why 
do we keep walking away from our true home? This young man has walked away from his true home. What's interesting to me about this young man is for him, it seems to be about the money. What he doesn't recognize is it's not so much about the money. It's about broken relationships. He has cut himself off from his father, from his family, and from his community, and chosen to live a life pursuing self-fulfillment, walking away from the father's heart, leaving the father brokenhearted. Our modern addictions allow us to walk away from home all the time. We busy ourselves. We're addicted to busyness. We're addicted to work. We're addicted to our devices. All we have to do is be home and pull a device out, and we've left our true home. All we have to do is distract ourselves from resting in the Father's heart. I was, I was talking with a psychologist a couple of weeks ago, and he was telling me that more and more what he is seeing in his office, and he, he mainly counsels uh, teenage boys and, and young men, and he said, more and more what I'm seeing in my office is not just your, your normal addictions that you would think, like addictions to drugs and addictions to pornography, but what I'm seeing more and more are addictions to gaming. He said, I'm seeing a freshman in college right now who sits in his dorm room and plays games and can't stop. And he's throwing his life away, playing games. We so easily can get distracted and throw our life away. Bono sings this song, uh, my father, my father was a rich man. He gave me the keys to his kingdom, and I left by the back door, and I threw away the key. Yeah, I threw away the key. We have a father who has given us the keys to the kingdom, and we're like, eh, I think I'll play games. We are easily distracted. We easily walk away from home. But this son, this younger son, he comes to his senses. And he says, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so this son, he he devises a plan. And he rehearses his lines. He says, okay, this is what I'll say to my father. And he rehearses his lines. He's like, that's what I'll do. And within him, he has to know this is still a great risk, right, to return home. Because 
As he returns home, he has to walk through the village. And what will happen when he walks through the village? He will face the shame and the ridicule of the community upon him. Because to the community, he is dead. He walked away, not just from the father, not just from his family, but from the entire community. He walked away. He has severed relationships. And this son decides... I I will confess my sin. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I I recognize I'm dead to you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But make me like one of your hired servants. See, in, in the first century, if you were a hired servant, you worked for bread, not for money. This is why there was a communal prayer. Give us today our daily bread. Just give us enough to eat today so we can survive. This fly is going to drive me nuts. Just give me enough to eat today. And what this son recognizes is, oh my goodness, my father is so generous, even with his hired servants, that they have not just food to eat for the day, They have enough to spare. Oh my goodness. Like, this is unheard of. This is my dad. He's generous to the hired servants and gives them not just enough, but more than enough. If I go back, if he'll let me be a hired servant, then I might be able to begin to pay off everything that I've squandered. Notice that for the son, even though there's an admittance of sin within him, that he has sinned against the Father and against heaven, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, make me like one of your hired servants who get more than enough. For him, it's still about the money. Maybe I can pay it back. He still hasn't fully realized that it's about broken relationships. That he has broken a relationship. For us, when we sin, it is less about the sin we committed and more about the relationship. And the Father's heart is always, always for restored relationship. And so the son, he's rehearsed his lines. He's decided to go home and give his lines. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now, if something like this actually happened in the first century... If a son actually had the gall to ask his father for his share of the estate and ran off and squandered all that money and then came back, the appropriate response would be to not receive the son back, but to say, you're dead to me. If, if by chance, the father had some mercy, he would sit in the house and make his son grovel at the gate and wait 
and wait. And wait. And perhaps a servant would come on behalf of the father. And the son could rehearse his lines to the servant. And then the servant would go tell the father what the son had said. And then perhaps, maybe the father would say, okay, send him away to go work in the fields. But this father, this father has been waiting himself. He's been waiting and waiting and waiting and watching and looking. And when he sees his boy, he runs. He runs to him. This would be shameful and humiliating for the father. We, in Marin, we see uh, men, middle-aged, older men, running and biking all the time. It's normal. Exercise is a way of life here, right? In the first century, kids run. Adults don't, especially a wealthy landowner like this man. For him to run would be shameful. He would have had to gather up his robes, revealing his legs, which would have been utterly humiliating. But this father has such great love for his son that he knows when he sees his son a long way off, he knows he's coming home. And he's going to have to walk through the village. And if he walks through the village, he's going to face the shame and the scorn of the community. I won't let him face that. I'll face it. I'll let the villagers laugh at me while I run. I'll let them humiliate me while I run. Because I won't let my son experience the shame and the scorn. I'll take it. And he runs to his son in a humiliating fashion, and embraces him, and hugs him, and kisses him, because his son has come home. The son, verse 21, said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So he he spills out his lines, but his last line isn't there. Make me like one of your hired servants. He simply says, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But doesn't say, make me like one of your hired servants. The father said to his servants, quick. So, some people believe he didn't say his last line because the father interrupted him. He wasn't having any of it. You will not grovel. You will not beg. I won't hear it. You're my son. You've come home. I think that the father did interrupt him and didn't let him finish, but I also think something else is going on. I think the son has finally realized by this display of love from his father running out to him, I think the son has finally realized, oh my goodness, it's not about the money. If I ask to be a hired servant right now, I will still be trying to take control. It's not about what I did with the money. I broke relationship with my father. I broke relationship with my family. I broke relationship with my community. 
and he just allows the Father to embrace him. And he leaves himself to the fate of the Father. No request to be a hired servant. Why is it that we so often feel we have to earn love? Why is it that we so often feel that we have to be the hired servant? Why is it that being a son or daughter is so uncomfortable for us? We would rather be considered workers for the kingdom and servants in God's kingdom. And we are workers and servants in God's kingdom, right? But we're also children. See, for this son, if he came back and said, make me a hired servant, he would have been trying to earn the father's favor. Now, he gets to work as a son out of joy, delight, and gratitude, rather than out of a hope of earning his way back in. The father says, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Notice the son doesn't even say, I'm sorry. The son doesn't even say, will you forgive me? It's just, I've sinned and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father's like, I'm not hearing that. Put the robe on him, put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet, and let's have a party. The father wants to have a party. And he puts this robe on him, the finest robe in the house, which surely would have belonged to the father himself and was a sure and certain symbol that the son had been restored fully as a son. This is the heart of the father. Prodigal means extravagant, reckless abundance. Who's the prodigal in this story? Well, the son was a prodigal in an unhealthy way, but this father is a prodigal with his love and his grace and his mercy. He throws a lavish party and he lavishly loves his son and he gives his grace lavishly. It's Wild. This father wants to have a wild, loving relationship with his son. This father gives his grace wildly, and this father wants to throw a wild party with the fattened calf. Because his son, who is lost, has been found. His son, who is dead, is alive. This is the heart of the father. We're going to take communion here in a couple of minutes. And as we come and partake of this bread and this cup, this is the party that Jesus left us. This is the celebration that Jesus left us. That, that in, in some sense, 
Jesus became the prodigal for us. He left his father in heaven and lived as a homeless man, and he did not squander his wealth, but instead gave it lavishly away and lived and then died on the cross only to return to the Father. Why? So that he could bring us all home with him. Home to the Father's heart. This is the love of God the Father through Christ Jesus the Son as we are all enlivened by the Spirit of God to live out this grace gift to the world. So when you come and you take this bread and dip it in this cup, perhaps this morning, you just need to know home is where the Father's heart is. Home is resting in the love of God. And we get to partake of that right here, right now, together, as a community of people who all live at home in the Father's heart. God, thank you. Thank you for grace. Thank you that there is no sin that you do not forgive. Thank you that that there is nowhere we can go that you will not find us and welcome us home. Thank you, God, that wherever we are, you are with us. And your love is reckless and wild. Your grace is extravagant. And you invite us to join the party that you're throwing. May we celebrate well. In the name of Jesus, amen.